0: 1 Thessalonians 4 in your Bibles, please. Character in any context is not something you just have, is it? Character is something that you develop. Character grows over time, character is impressed upon us by others. Character is grown in us through our own experiences. Character is the very root of what we are. It's not necessarily what compels our actions, but rather what we would say describes our actions. There is bad character used to describe men and women who have, we might say, no qualms about Things that we would say are of poor character, cheating and stealing and lying and other such vices, then there is good character used to describe men and women who um, would not exhibit those character traits, but typically the opposite, things like honesty and work ethic and such. Character traits can often be a mishmash in our lives of contradictions, so that a man works hard. A man is an honest man, but might also be a man, say, of excessive temper. Or a man may be quiet and polite, but is yet a liar. This is a contradiction we might say and yet in the world around us we often see these contradictions where it seems as though certain parts of a man's character almost operate mutually exclusive to others. Tonight we're going to talk about an important element of what we would call Christian character. Now this is not a piece of character that is exclusive to Christians, but as we think about all of those things that we would typically call good character... Typically what society calls good character are in fact traits of biblical morality and biblical action that are imposed upon other people. So that uh, even outside of those who believe that the Bible is truth or outside of those who have accepted Christ as their savior, they exhibit certain characteristics that people would say are good and typically they revolve around those things that biblical morality teaches, things such as generosity, things such as honesty, things such as work ethic some of those that we've mentioned already. Now, as I said, these characteristics are not exclusive to Christians, but they are indeed clear reflections of the character of God and of biblical morality. To have the qualities of good character does not by any means imply that you are a Christian, However, as Christians, the Bible says, these character traits ought to be qualities found in us. So I'm not questioning, uh, as as we talk through this particular element of Christian character this evening, it's not intended inherently to question whether or not you are a believer by whether or not you have these character traits, but rather to question if you are a believer, ought you not have these character traits. So you recall last time we, we spoke on the dangers of fornication and it was a pretty direct message from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 that is increasingly relevant in our age. Today's message is likewise going to be a direct message that is also increasingly relevant to our age, just in a, a different way. So we continue with verses 9 through 12, and let's go ahead and read those verses together of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another, and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. In verse 9, Paul states quite pointedly that there is no need for him to speak to this church on the topic of brotherly love for they have been well taught by God on the subject. This is something that has come up several times in the book already, the reality that Paul left them earlier than he would have liked, but as he hears the report of Timothy in regard to this church, he found that this church had indeed been faithful to God and had indeed been exhibiting the manifestations of brotherly love. And yet he has already mentioned in the, at the end of 1 Thessalonians 3, and again here, that he would desire them to increase more and more in this brotherly love this fraternal affection one toward another, speaking specifically of the love that they have between one another as believers. And that's what he's speaking of here, is the love that they would show toward one another as believers. And it is important for Paul to uh, found his message this evening on this idea, on the idea that we ought to be loving one another in uh, increasingly deeper ways as believers. Because what he's going to talk about this evening is in fact, uh, in these verses, and what we're going to talk about this evening, is perhaps some in the church that were taking advantage of brotherly love. And so he wants to found this message on the um, the important principle that brotherly love is a good thing and that you should not be dissuaded from brotherly love, but as Christians, we ought to have the character to not take advantage of the love of the brethren. We learn even more about love in these two verses, in in verse 9 and verse 10, than we learned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. In these verses, verse 10 says, And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia. Not only did the love of the brethren extend toward the immediate church there in Thessalonica among these these believers, but they extended their love toward all of the churches that were in Macedonia. Thessalonica was one of six cities that Paul visited while he was in the Macedonian area. Acts 16, 17, and 18 tell us of these churches. He began in Neapolis. Then he went to Philippi. Then he went to Amphipolis. Then he went to Apollonia. Then he went to Thessalonica. Then he went to Berea. And after Berea, he went to Athens, which is not in Macedonia. It was in the region of Achaea. So these six, these six regions or these six cities, at least we know in the region of Macedonia that Paul had visited. And as Paul commends these men and women for their faith and for their love, he says your brotherly love extended not only to your own Folks, your own uh, church in Thessalonica, but it extended beyond that to those that were in these other cities as well. What a fantastic example of love that these believers not only poured out affection one toward another, but went out of their way to express love to believers in other cities that were around them. But our focus this evening is in verses 11 and 12. These verses introduce to us a concept which is mentioned in several scriptures as being important to the mindset of the believer. It is an important part of our Christian character and testimony and one that we should endeavor to cultivate in our own mindset and be able to explain to those that would ask us. Following Paul's reiteration of the necessity of love, he says that the church should, in verse 11, pursue three distinct but interrelated qualities. They should, first, study to be quiet, second, do their own business, and third, work with their own hands. And while it's important that we understand these phrases as a unit, and we will indeed bring them together as a unit in just a few moments, I'd like us to consider first each one individually. And we begin with this phrase, study to be quiet. This is a very interesting phrase. The word study here literally means to strive or to be ambitious. It's a word used only three times in the New Testament. Both other times was used by Paul and it talked about his labor in the ministry. The degree to which he worked in the ministry. The effort that he poured out into the ministries that the Lord had given to him. And that's the idea here. To study with great intensity, with fervor, with labor. To study tirelessly. To pursue this with all of your heart. Study, he says, to be quiet. Outside of the New Testament, this word study was often referred uh, to the kind of deep motivation and ambition that compelled a man to give something his fullest effort, his fullest attention. It almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? That a person could keep uh, so much attention and put so much ambition into being quiet. An interesting thought, putting so much attention and ambition into holding one's peace. When we think of ambitious people, we might say type A personalities. We often think of people that are more than willing and quite eager to have their opinions heard, people that are very interested in telling others what they think, people who um, would do anything other than hold their peace in a conversation. But as we continue to form a biblical and well-rounded exa- uh, understanding of exactly what Paul is exhorting us to do here, we'll find that not only is this concept that he espouses not contradictory, but indeed the idea of being quiet is perhaps one of the greatest difficulties that we as believers face. But first, let's consider the next phrase. Study to be quiet... And secondly, he says, and to do your own business. To do one's own business, as expressed here, will, would literally mean to worry about yourself, to uh, focus on the things that pertain to yourself. Now, it's not saying that you should be self-focused in the um, self-righteous, uh, selfish sense, but rather, not self-focused, but self concerned. May I explain the difference? As a father of twins, I have two little girls who love each other and they spend almost every moment of their lives together. They eat together, they sleep in the same room, they play together all day. Now as my girls play, we expect them to be kind and we commend them for their kindness one to another. If one of my girls shares a toy with her sister, we, we praise her for it. If one of my girls helps her sister up when she falls, we commend her for her thoughtfulness. She is not being selfish. She is caring about her sister. She is loving her sister. She is interested in her sister. She is spending time and investing in her sister. But there are situations where my daughters need to, for all of their kindness, stay out of their sister's business. There are certain things that are not for, one, for, for them to, to inquire about or to dig into about their sister's business. And the example that I would typically give is this one. One of my daughters does something wrong. And I call that daughter into the bedroom and we... Discipline her. And we come out and the other daughter would, will typically look at me or my wife and say, did my sister get consequences? And we'll look at her and we'll say, that's between us and her. That is not your concern. That's not her business. What, how we responded to the situation at hand and what transpired between that girl and her parents is not her sister's business. That was a personal matter. And so while things such as um, personal concern and love and such, these are things that are indeed commendable and selfishness is not, being self-concerned is a good thing. Not butting into other people's affairs where we don't belong is what it's speaking of here. Paul is saying in the second phrase not that you can't go out of your way to help or to bless or to disciple or to reach out to others or even to exhort others or um, rebuke others for sin, those sorts of things, but that you know how to mind your own business in affairs that truly don't concern you. And the third phrase that we see here to work with your own hands. The phrase gives us important context regarding what Paul is speaking of specifically with the other two. To work with one's own hands implies personal responsibility. It would be contrasted with the idea of an able-bodied person not working, not because he can't, but rather because he isn't choosing to do so. And this is the concept that helps us see where Paul is going with this teaching. When he says, work hard at keeping your peace, and do your own business, and work with your hands, we see a well-rounded command, do we not? A well-rounded thought, work hard at keeping your peace, at doing your own business, at working with your own hands. Important lessons about Christian character as it relates to personal responsibility and interpersonal relationships. And that's what Paul is teaching about. Christian character as it relates to personal responsibility and interpersonal relationships. So Paul is speaking uh, toward the actions of two different kinds of people here. First, the kinds of people that can't keep their nose out of other people's business. That's the first group that Paul is speaking about. The second group he's speaking about is the kind of people who can work but don't work, who prefer rather to live off of the support of others that do work. These are the two categories of people that, that Paul is speaking of and warning about. Now we need to consider both of these concepts in detail. So let's begin with the idea of studying to be quiet and doing one's own business. The term in question here, or the terms in question here, are being a busybody and being a gossip. Being a busybody and being a gossip. These are what we might call pet sins in Christian circles. The kind of sins that are prolific among Christians because those sins happen behind people's backs and everyone is involved, so no one is going to call you out on it. These are the kind of sins that we say, well, they don't really hurt anybody, which is a misnomer, so you don't really feel bad about them. These are the kind of sins that tend to be group sins, not uh, only individual, and so you can draw other people into it and you can um, be in a company of people and therefore justify your actions. And this sin, it would seem, was a major problem in Thessalonian society. And that shouldn't surprise us because it's probably a problem in just about every society. So what does it mean to be a busybody? Well, a busybody is a meddler, a person who concerns himself with another person's affairs outside of of his place to do so. He must know everything and must give you his opinion on everything, even if it's none of his business. In the digital age in which we live, Being a busybody is not just prevalent. There are entire careers wrapped around being a busybody. A paparazzi is a person who is paid to stick his nose in celebrities' business. Stick his nose in the business of someone outside of when they are officially in the limelight. This paparazzi then sells his findings to a news show whose entire purpose for existence is to plug themselves in without invitation into the business of other people. And these news shows exist only because there are millions of people in this country and around the world who are interested in knowing the details of other people's lives that they really have no business in knowing. And that's the idea of being a busybody. These shows are busybody shows. But the problem hits much closer to home than just a television show. When we must know about or have our opinion heard about the affairs of other people, whether it's family members or friends or neighbors or celebrities, things that really are none of our business, but we stick, it, stick our nose in there, we make it our business and then we offer um, incessant opinions onto or concerning how to solve whatever it might be. We're being a busybody. So that's a busybody. Putting our... Seeking information that's really none of our business. Giving opinions that are really none of our business. Sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. What does it mean to be a gossip? A busybody is a person who spends their time and effort learning information about others that doesn't concern them and giving unsolicited opinions to whoever will listen. Generally other busybodies. A gossip is a person who spends their time listening to and passing along unsubstantiated information about people, about events, and, like the busybody, information that's probably none of their business anyway. We can use the same celebrity news shows. We could use that as as good illustrations. Not only are they busy sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong, but they're quite often busy Taking any rumor, taking anything that may or may not be true, substantiated or not, and passing it along to the general public. It's gossip. Gossip is passing along information that is unsubstantiated, information that we don't know is true. Now, these things may or may not be true, but that doesn't determine whether or not gossip spreads. And gossip typically spreads regardless of the consequences of the person to whom they're speaking. Gossips are dangerous for that reason because they spread news indiscriminately and in doing so, they run the risk of falsely damaging the reputation of another through their words. But even if the news were true, that only upgrades the person from a gossip to a busybody, right? because they're still sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. They're still in someone else's business anyway. And so Paul says, study to be quiet and to do your own business. Put effort into keeping your nose out of other people's business and put effort into keeping your opinions about other people's business to yourself. So what does the Bible have to say outside of this passage about gossips and busybodies. I refer you just to the next epistle to the Thessalonians. How do we know that this was a problem in the Thessalonian church? Because Paul had to write about it in both of his epistles. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this beginning in verse 11, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if And he would not work, neither should he eat. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But it's verse 12 that we're focusing in on. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now then there are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So these people that aren't working, but rather are idle and are devoting themselves to being a busybody and a gossip, Paul says, here's the command of the Lord. Get off your keister, shut your mouth, and get to work. Get some character. Paul speaks to our next issue as well. We'll focus upon that in verse 12. Let's take a few moments here. To distinguish what the Bible is saying from what the Bible is not saying, so we can better understand this. Paul is not saying that you cannot correct sin. Paul is not saying here that you cannot form judgments about the fruit of other people's actions. These verses could be construed to say, if you go up to a believer and say, hey, look, I saw you do this, you know that's wrong they'd say, well, you need to study to be quiet and to do your own business. Leave me alone. Get your nose out of my business. That's not where Paul is going here. That's not what Paul is saying here. The Scriptures teach us that we are to be held accountable one to another. The Scriptures teach us that we are to exhort and edify and to rebuke one another. And so if we have a relationship with a believer that is conducive to, to helping them out of their situation, it's not in, inherently wrong for you to approach them in a respectful and meaningful way. But there may, in that, by that same token, be times where a believer's actions are just none of our business. You have no relationship with them. You have no authority over them. And it may just plain be none of your business what they're doing. And so it's not, we're not drawing a line across the board that says inherently just don't, don't deal with anything that anyone is doing. Paul is speaking of people who invest their time in the affairs of others who, while simultaneously ignoring their own responsibilities and faults. When a person's affairs touch our lives or when we have authority over them, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility often to speak as to those affairs. When a person's affairs are openly wrong, those in authority over him or who have a relationship with him have the responsibility of bringing those things to his attention. But when we treat other people's business as an open book for our consumption and judgment, we do wrong. Believer or unbeliever alike, when we take their affairs and we make them our business when it's none of our business, we do wrong. And Jesus taught this concept in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1-5, through 5, he said this, "...judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be meted to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye? And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite," Jesus says, "...first, Cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So Jesus speaks to two concepts here, two dangers here. He speaks of a man who has spent his time assessing the actions of others against his own perception of right and wrong. If I see a man steal, and I tell him the Bible says stealing is wrong, I'm not judging him, the Word of God is judging him. I'm the messenger. When we say in this church that abortion is sin or sodomy is sin, we are not judging men. We are expressing the expectations of the Word of God on that action and on its fruit. But if I presume to spend my time digging into another man's life and assessing all of his actions based upon my own perceptions of what is right and wrong, if I am digging into his life and assessing his choices in his life based upon my choices in my life, not knowing his context, not knowing his reasoning, and not really having any business there anyway, I have gone beyond the license granted to me by the Word of God and am meandering into busybody territory. I'm sticking my nose where it doesn't belong. If I feel compelled to offer my two cents on a moral decision of another man that pertains to his personal choice, I've wandered into busybody territory. I would be much better served turning my magnifying glass on myself and dealing with my own problems, spending time working on the elements of my own character that are in need of personal improvement." And as these topics pertain to gossip, we have seen already that gossip is in many ways a heightened form of being a busybody. Whereas a busybody spends his time digging up and assessing information that is none of his business, the gossip spends his time digging up and passing along information that may not even be correct, whether it's any of his business or not. Our God is a God of truth. He desires truth in his children as he is truth in himself. Gossip is not truth. Gossip may be truth, but it is not truth. And every time our information, for every time our information may turn out to be correct, we also run the risk of our information being incorrect and thus stepping into untruth. And not only that, but possibly damaging the life, relationships, or testimony of the one of whom we're gossiping. And beyond that, disregarding what God's Word has to say to us about gossips and busybodies. Now, all that we've spoken of already, this isn't very easy, is it? We all have opinions. Everybody loves a good scandal. Everybody loves to hear about other people's problems and issues. And why? Well, because other people's problems make us feel good about ourselves, don't they? Brokering information puts us in a position of perceived authority, gives us pseudo-importance, and in the case of others' failures, makes us feel better in our own moral decisions and actions. And everything I just mentioned is pride. So Paul says, study. Really work hard. Really labor. Put your effort into being quiet and doing your own business. Really put effort into keeping your opinions to yourself on stuff that doesn't, that doesn't pertain to you. On not sticking your nose in people's business where it doesn't belong on doing your own thing and not going beyond the liberty that you've been given in other people's affairs. If someone asks you for your opinion, give it. If someone is under your guidance and counsel, guide them and counsel them. If someone's actions affect you, deal with it. But if it's none of your business... Just leave it alone. Now the final phrase says, "Work with your own hands." Work with your own hands. I bring you back to 2 Thessalonians chapter three, and in verses eleven through thirteen, we'll just read the whole passage again, or the whole the three verses. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you: that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Paul's teaching and examples in this regard were explicit. If any man is not willing to work, willing to work, he should not eat. And the principle is basic. And has basically been lost in our culture. But what we understand is that ours is not the first culture to have such wealth and prosperity that scores of otherwise completely capable men live off the labors of others. The principle that Paul espouses is that every able man take responsibility for himself and for his family, work to provide... And then in doing so, he has the privilege to live off of the fruit of his own labor. On the contrary, Paul says, if a man is unwilling to do what is necessary to provide for himself and for his family, he should likewise suffer the results of his own laziness and misplaced priorities by going without the necessities of life. That he should reap the consequence of not eating if he is unwilling to put his hand into the effort of providing for himself. Consider some other verses that speak to this issue in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 28. Paul says this as he's commending the believers on um, the old them uh, being passed away and the new them taking precedent, as he encourages them to put off the old self, the old man, and to put on the new man that is in Christ. He says this that you put off concerning the former conversation, that were literally meaning actions, conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, he says, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, he says, and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil." Let him that stole steal no more, he says, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. So Paul is correcting various problems here where he says there's an old man way of doing things there's a sinful way of doing things there's the way that the unrighteous do things and then there's a new man way of doing things the way that righteous men do things the way that those who are controlled by the spirit of God do things the way that those who are in Christ do things so he says the old man lied If you're lying, you're living in the old man. Paul says, put off the old man and put on the new man, which is speaking truth. The old man got angry, lost his temper, had no self-control. Paul says, put off the old man and assume the new man, which is you get angry over righteous things only, righteous indignation, being angry and sinning not reconciling when you do get angry immediately, not letting the sun go down on your wrath, not being intemperate and out of control angry, but angry only where God is angry in righteousness and not allowing the sun to go down on your wrath. And then finally he says, don't steal. Stealing was the old man. Taking things that didn't belong to you was the old man. Taking advantage of... uh, that which was not according to your labor is the old man. Put off the old man, he says, and put on the new man. And the new man takes personal responsibility for himself. The new man works and lives off of the fruit of his own effort. The new man takes initiative. Indicative of Christ. The drive to work to earn one's living, to provide for himself and for his loved ones based upon the fruit of his own labor is a biblical compulsion. This is one of the reasons that Christians often speak against socialism and communism. These philosophies espouse the idea that your labor should provide for the needs of others who don't work or don't work as hard. That rather than living off of the fruit of your own hard work, to the degree that you put in hard work, you must live off of a proportioned amount of the fruit of your hard work regardless of how hard you're willing to work or how far you're willing to achieve. And it is for this reason that the great American experiment was so successful because philosophically men knew that the only limits to their ability and the only limits to their success was their willingness to put in the effort was their willingness to labor. And so a man, if he worked hard enough, could pull himself out of the gutter and put himself into a good situation because he had the privilege of living off of the fruit of his own labor. And Paul says that the man who is rejecting the old man of sin and assuming a life pleasing to Christ will put off his compulsion to live off of other people's money and assume the desire to provide for himself. Consider some other concepts of Scripture concerning work. Proverbs is full of them. Proverbs 12.27 says, "...the slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of the diligent man is precious." the slothful man will go out and he will kill and then not care. He's a waster. But the diligent man doesn't waste. He understands how precious that food is, that effort is. Proverbs 18.9, he, he also that is slothful in his work is a brother to him that is a great waster. A lazy man is a wasteful man. A wasteful man is a brother to a lazy man. There's a connection between the wasteful man and the lazy man. The man who is unwilling to work and earn the things that he owns does not understand the value of money or the value of possessions. And so he's willing to waste, to trash, to, to ignore, because he doesn't understand the value of things. Proverbs 19.15 Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. Proverbs 20 verse four: "The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore shall he beg in the harvest and have nothing." Proverbs 21:25: "The desire of a slothful of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor." In Proverbs 22.13, The slothful man saith, There is a lion without. I shall be slain in the streets. Thus, as it goes on, he does not work. The lazy man finds any manner of excuse not to work. And if left to his own lack of initiative, he would simply die for lack of resources to live. The man unwilling to work is an anchor to his family. An anchor to his community an anchor to his society, the man unwilling to work reflects a lack of personal responsibility and accountability for those to whom he is responsible. The man unwilling to work advoca- advocates his God-given responsibilities. And so Paul commands us in First Thessalonians chapter four, to strive to be quiet, to contentedly trust the Lord to provide. For us as we willingly do what we can to honestly earn and provide for ourselves and for those that we love. But why does this matter? Why should we avoid being a busybody or a gossip or avoid being one who simply lives off of the dime of another? Well, we've already said that it is a reflection of the character of God who is truth and who desires truth in his children. But look at verse 12. Paul gives a purpose statement. He says that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Paul gives two reasons why you ought to study to be quiet, to do your own business, and to labor with your hands. First, he says it's a testimony issue. Second, it's a provision issue. As a Christian, You please God in Christ. God looks at you, He sees His Son, and He is pleased. And as believers, God has designed our lives in this age of grace to be an outworking of that grace. In other words, you don't need to do things to please God or to earn favor with Him. In fact, we know from the Scriptures that there is nothing you can do to earn favor with God or to please God in in the sense of of salvation or godly living. We recognize that Hebrews 11.6 tells us that the only things that please God are things that are done in faith. And if it's done in faith, it is certainly done through our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the Bible reveals time and again that as a child of God, we ought to be compelled through our love for God, through what He has already done for us, to obey Him. And as a believer, what we do in this life and what we don't do in this life is intended to be constrained by three general factors. First, what we know God wants us to do based upon His commands. So, what we do and don't do ought to be framed in the template of God's commands. What God says to do, what God says not to do. Second, what God wants us to do based upon principles. So we take the principles of God's Word and we recognize what God loves and what God hates. The commands are explicit. The principles are more vague. So we take those principles and we frame through those principles an understanding of God, how, how, how God wants us to live. But then third... We frame what we do and what we don't do around the world around us and the testimony that we live among them. I don't steal because God commands me not to steal. I love my brethren because God commands me to love my brethren. I don't say certain things and I do say certain things because of the principles of God's Word. Speaking of holiness and sanctity and godliness and righteousness. But there are also some things that I don't do because of my testimony. I don't mind doing them. I wouldn't mind doing them. There's nothing that I would perceive to be wrong with them. And yet... I have a testimony to uphold. And while I may know that that is okay, someone else might not. And I need to be careful that I'm living a testimony. Now, sometimes these endeavors overlap. God commands us directly that we as God's people consume our time with genuine effort and labor rather than idleness and gossip. But in doing so, in obeying the command of God, we also bear the privilege of having a good testimony before the world around us. And so we are obeying a command of God and simultaneously bearing a good testimony. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. But when it comes to gossip, the church is kind of a fishbowl, isn't it? The unbelieving world around us is always looking at the church, waiting for mistakes that it can prove that our message is invalid. As believers, God has called us to be, as best we can, a good testimony to the society that is around us. We are called to be submissive to our authorities so that when they consider who their best citizens are, who their best employees are, Christians would bubble up to the top of that list. We are called to be submissive to our parents, even unbelieving parents, so that if our parents were to consider who is the most obedient child their Christian children would bubble up to the top of the list. And in doing so, we reflect to the world a depth and a strength of character compelled not by our own goodness, but rather by our love for God and our obedience to Christ. So when people see the anchors of society, when people look at groups that are constantly seeking handouts, who are unwilling to work even though they could, you and I as believers should not be on that list because we are instead expected by God in verse 12 to walk honestly, to reflect the kind of people who study to be quiet, do their own business, and work hard with their hands. And in doing so, we bear a good testimony of our Lord. And so two points as we apply and as we close this evening. Point number one, God wants you busy doing so that you don't busy yourself with idle talk and gossip. Point two, God's will for you is that you earn your living, to earn your privileges, to live by the fruit of your labor, not by the fruit of others' labor. Being a busybody or an idle gossip disrespects the person or the object of your idle chatter and fundamentally reflects poorly upon Christian character. Anything that reflects poorly upon you as a Christian does also, by extension, reflect poorly on the one you claim to represent. Is that not true? If you call yourself a Christian and you exhibit poor character, you're not only reflecting on your own character, but you are reflecting poorly on Christ. But it's the second point that I'd like to spend our time on. You know you should not be a busybody. You know you should not be a gossip. You know they reflect poorly. That doesn't mean it's easy, but we know this. But the second part of society is the great elephant in the culture, right? The second part of the verse. Western culture, not just the United States, Western culture has increasingly become a welfare state. We live in a society that is increasingly dependent upon money that we have not earned. The dynamics of this system have become increasingly complicated. We pay into this system and the system is intended for everybody who qualifies. Some elements of this system are legislated so that we're required at points almost, at least to take part. And I am not here this evening to tell you explicitly how you should handle the minefield of the modern welfare state. To one degree or another, we all are affected by this. To one degree or another, our government has been socialized to the point where every one of us has to live as we live within the bounds of the government uh, to some degree, on this give and take of not being able to fully live off of the fruit of our own labor, maybe that's because the government has chosen to take so much of the fruit of your labor, with the expectation that they'll give some of it back to you. That that's just how the system, the system works. Maybe it's because, as we talk about perhaps the healthcare system, you're legislated now to take something from the government if you can't afford it on your own. And if you can't afford it, you can't just defer it. And so there, there is a minefield out there which we would call the welfare state. Be it food stamps, be it welfare, be it entitlements, be it scholarships, be it all of these things. And I can't stand up here behind the pulpit and rightfully tell you that you can't be anywhere in that system because that's just not the reality of the world we live in. So I'm not going to speak to you in application on a practical level. I know where my family stands. We stand somewhere in good conscience before God and we're living it out to the best of our ability. But what I do, what I know God wants us to take from this, and what every one of us can take from this is the mindset, the philosophy, that says, to the best of my ability, while still submitting myself to the system that is around me, to whatever degree I have to, I am going to make my own way off the fruit of my labor and not going to unnecessarily take advantage of the system. And in doing so, we have the privilege of walking honestly, among those that are without. That word without there literally meaning among unbelievers. That unbelievers look at you and they can't point the finger and say you're just as guilty as anyone else because you have lived under a philosophy of allowing yourself, of, of living off of the fruit of your own labor to the best of your ability. Now I... Mentioned very early in our message tonight that Paul emphasized, before he emphasized this concept of studying to be quiet and doing our own business and working with our hands, he emphasized first and foremost again brotherly love, personal charity, being provided for by another when you are perfectly capable of providing for yourselves would still fall under the idea of not working when you should. But, giving to the needs of one another is an entirely different matter. Giving to the needs of one another is something that we cannot abdicate. Giving to those who are in need is essential to the Christian testimony and to the expectation of God. We'll talk about this more in just a minute. Because believers are not opposed to helping people. Certainly not. On the contrary, when it comes to those in true need through various circumstances, those who are unable to provide for themselves or to provide for their family, God fully expects us and we ought to fully desire to give greatly to those needs especially when they're believers. But what believers ought to be opposed to based upon the teachings of God's Word is living a life or endorsing a system that encourages or facilitates laziness through the liberal distribution of money without any true measure of accountability as pertaining to the needs of the recipients. It is not hypocritical Nor is it inconsistent to support those in need while opposing a flawed means of meeting those needs. We can oppose a system that lacks accountability, transparency, and clarity while at the same time desiring to help those who need that system or who are properly taking advantage of that system. We must parse. Those who are taking advantage of welfare because they need it from those who are not, who don't need it and are are still using the system. We must parse in our hearts. We must be careful not to be so angry at, at a system that is giving to those who don't need it that we get angry at the people who are using the system that do need it. With all that being said, there's one more thing we need to mention as we close. Like every aspect of society and culture, it is what it is, whether we agree with it or not. The government that we are called to submit unto has stated that we are to pay taxes, much of which goes to these programs. The government that we are called to submit unto has chosen to allow these programs to bring the country into deep debt much of which goes into the needs of welfare. As citizens, we have the privilege to speak, to vote, to change things. But as believers, it is our privilege, even in the midst of what we perceive to, would perceive to be wrong choices, to live above those choices and to extend grace to those who do not submit themselves to the word of God. We cannot sit in our ivory tower of biblical knowledge and obedience and turn our noses up at those who fail to see what we see or to understand what we understand. We cannot turn our noses up at those who, because of the nature of the system within which we operate, need this help. We as a church... can, however, affect our own little corner of this world. We as a church can help one another find jobs, encourage one another to meet our own needs. We as a church can help one another who lack by supporting them and their families. We as a church can live out the biblical ideas that Paul teaches to the best of our ability. And in doing so, we will fulfill the purpose that Paul presents here, which is to walk honestly toward them that are without. They will see a fellowship of men and women who have purposed in their hearts to provide for themselves, to be satisfied with the provision of God and the fruit of their own labor, and God will be glorified. They will see a group of people who are supporting one another who are loving one another, who are giving of the abundance of their own labor to the needs of those who lack and God will be glorified. So while we may not be able to in our own little church affect a solution to the larger problem that society has found itself in as it has been increasingly socialized, a solution that um, could solve a problem that has been decades in the making and now enslaves much of the population, we still can be different, live different, and think differently than the world around us. And may God's Holy Spirit lead each one of us through this truth, through His truth, into how we can best apply that to our own lives and how we can best apply that to our own church this evening in order that we might reflect well the principles of God's Word as it pertains to labor and how to work honestly with our hands. Let's pray together.